Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. And welcome to Party of the People. On this episode, we're joined by David Johns, the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition. As a nation's only civil rights and public policy organization that is intentional and unapologetic in advocating for uh, and celebrating the assets of Black LGBTQ and same gender loving people. And it's the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. Now, the thing that's been on my mind this week is that sometimes you just got to step away from the internet that I'm not convinced we are designed to take in so much information so consistently and so steadily. And that recently I was on a trip and I just wasn't online in the way that I'm normally online. And it was just such a different way to go through the world, not being bombarded with the thoughts of other people all the time. And a part of me thinks that while the internet can definitely inspire us and social media can inspire us and make us aware of a host of ideas that we would have never been in proximity to. One of the ways that we're actually able to access our gift is through a focus and like a deliberate ability to sit with our own ideas. And like that's what I've had to remind myself in these past couple weeks is that I need space to sit with my own ideas. Let's go. Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Duray at Duray, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. You know, an appropriate response after Clint introduced himself this week could have been, oh, because I think everybody in their right mind should be Team Cardi B, Barty Gang right now. Listen, I saw that video <laughs> where she was like, look, Barty y'all, gang. I'm scared about the shutdown. And I know a lot of you all think it doesn't matter. But it does, and here's why. And yes, Obama shut down the government, but that was for health care. And for reasons that I will not repeat on this podcast, you should care about that health care plan. Um, mm-hmm. And then Tommy Loren came for her, and she was like, no, you, you really don't want any of this. And I just think that we should be getting a lot more straightforward, to the point, like clear-cut political commentary from everybody, including Cardi B. I'm glad Cardi B used her platform to uh, raise awareness about what's happening. Just as a technical point, Obama didn't shut down the government. That was Ted Cruz. But um, point taken. True story. (laughs) True story. It happened during the Obama years. Yes. There was a lot of feedback about, and there's been a lot of feedback about the way Cardi delivers her messages that, you know, she also is really a big fan of the presidents and knows all the presidents. And, and when that came out, people were like, oh my God, who knew that Cardi B was smart? And it's like, just because people don't use the language that you use to describe the world they live in doesn't make their perspective or their points any less valid. And if you're around people who uh, say that people don't matter because they don't use the same language, like that is dangerous. You got to check that. That part of our work uh, as activists is to remember that people are like always learning the languages, but people often have the experiences up front. 
I would go a step further and say that Cardi B herself is a wordsmith, right? And the ways in which she uses words are intentional and create a conversation around what she's talking about that frankly wouldn't happen if she used sort of a more mundane set of words. So in many ways, as a political strategy, the way that she talks about these issues is far superior to what most politicians are doing. Or more technical, like not just mundane, right? But more technical. Like if she was talking about like regressive taxes, da da da, like she can say it in a different way. I think that's what Ocasio-Cortez has also done that's really brilliant. When she was like, you only make $10 and you keep the $10 because you only made $10. And we and you're like, yes. Like way to explain tax policy in a way that like anybody can understand and they don't have to watch CNN all day. I think it's also worth noting so much of the pushback around Cardi B is not only about how she said it, but also the very idea that a hip hop artist like would be able to communicate around like public policy effectively. And, I, and this is something that we've seen specifically directed at black and brown folks uh, who have a background participating in hip hop. If there's no other lesson you walk away from this conversation with, it is the reminder that dominant culture teaches us the idea that there is only one right way to do something. Speaking of uh, telling stories, though, uh, did anybody watch either one of the Fire Festival documentaries? <laughs> they are disturbing and fascinating, and disturbing again. <laughs> I haven't seen I haven't seen them, but I've heard a lot. Oh yeah, you got to watch them. I, I watched the the Hulu one, and I saw the preview for the Netflix one. But after you watch the Hulu one, you kind of don't want to watch the Netflix one because you realize that. Uh, the people who made the Netflix one are actually very complicit in the entire thing. They were like the main promoters of the event. And uh, the uh, whole time they're trying to cover up the fact that they were the ones involved. It is sort of wild, too, that they're two documentary. You know, like <laughs> you think about all the things that there, there aren't documentaries about in the world that sort of matter <laughs> a little bit more than the Firefest. And like, it's like the first documentary war I've ever seen where like Hulu dropped theirs before Netflix. You're like, well, that's an interesting sort of thing. And our beloved Ja Rule is uh, on Twitter being like, I had no clue. It's like, well, that's awkward. The Hula one was fascinating. And it was a real lesson in the ways in which like star power and like influencers and all of this can be leveraged to produce something that actually doesn't exist. Right. And so like they leveraged everybody. They had like some of the biggest influencers in the game promoting this event. And ultimately there was like no substance there. And so like it's a it's a reminder that, you know, people can create something out of nothing, but if there's no substance there, like we have to be thoughtful about what we're actually creating uh, and like not giving, lending that power and platform to fraudsters like this man who uh, is currently facing federal charges for engaging in not one, but multiple frauds, uh, one of which was Firefest. I came away from both documentaries feeling very, very upset about the fact that there are a number of Bahamian workers who were hired for this festival and still have not been paid. One woman said that because she contracted out for other people, that she actually went into her own savings and paid $50,000 that she had been saving for her retirement. And these people have never seen a dime of their money. Is there like a GoFundMe or like something for the Bahamian workers who didn't get paid? There is actually a GoFundMe for them. I retweeted it. So if folks want to find that, they can either search on GoFundMe or go to my Twitter timeline. In other news this week, obviously we saw a really frightening and terrible display 
at the Lincoln Memorial, we saw Nathan Phillips, who himself is an indigenous elder, uh, being taunted by a number of young men wearing MAGA hats from, I do believe, Covington, Kentucky. They all go to a Catholic school. There are lots of different stories around what happened, but I wanted to bring that up because obviously it's been the talk of the town and I am both incredibly disturbed, not just by the blatant racism um, on display, but the utter lack of respect for our elders. And I just don't know where that disappeared and when that happened. It's fascinating to watch as people attempt to absolve some of these young men of what they did by saying like, oh, these are just kids. Kids do dumb things. They make mistakes in a way that is not uh, reflective of the same level of empathy that is ever extended toward somebody like Trayvon Martin, or the same level of empathy that is extended toward so many of the black and brown young people who we've seen killed over the past several years. So it's always worth noting uh, who empathy is extended to and who it's not. And like you mentioned, Clint, I mean, it's clear that, you know, young people and, you know, young men, in many cases, can do stupid things. But there's a particular context in which the stupid things that they choose to do are so obviously and intentionally racist. And that context is one in which, you know, we've seen that it's not just like this group of kids that in fact, the school itself is almost entirely white. The faculty uh, of the school, uh, documentary filmmaker on Twitter, Arlen Parsa actually did an investigation into the faculty at the school uh, and every single teacher he found was white. And then we saw that uh, one of the young men's mom put out a statement blaming black Muslims and uh, fake news and all of this sort of racist talking points. So it's pretty clear that there might have been an influence there. And then, of course, they were all wearing the, the MAGA hats. Uh, and so, you know, there was a whole system and a, a culture that translated that tendency into something that, that ended up being what it was uh, and that being racist. And so we have to call that out and, and sort of not just focus on, like, the individuals, but the broader culture and the system that produced those individuals and that continues to produce them uh, year after year in, in more schools than just Covington. Remember that the school that the, the the boys went to is in Kentucky. So why were they in D.C. in the first place? They were in D.C. because they were at the, quote, March for Life rally, which was the uh, anti-abortion rally. And then they chose to be in space and proximity uh, around an indigenous people's rally. Like they made the choice to go do that. The indigenous people's rally was not by them. Like they went to be antagonistic. The student who is seen most clearly on the video has a PR firm already who released a statement saying that he remained motionless and calm. And he wrote, I realized everyone had cameras and that perhaps a group of adults was trying to provoke a group of teenagers into a larger conflict. And you're like, if that's not the most revisionist history of what we literally just saw happen. And then he goes on to write, I did smile at one point because I wanted him to know that I was not going to become angry, intimidated, or be provoked into a larger confrontation. I'm a faithful Christian and practicing Catholic, and I always try to live up to the ideals my faith teaches me, to remain respectful of others and to take no action that would lead to conflict or violence. The hypocrisy, like it is the way white supremacy shows up, right, that like forces you to think that you are the problem when it clearly does something wrong. The last thing that I'll say is that what we did see in the video, too, was resistance. We saw the elder just stand firm in his conviction about like who he was and, and what he was called to do on that day. And we've seen it in the interview since. And I don't want that to be lost in the midst of all the other stuff. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. 
Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, Never Frozen Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the factor meals and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.com slash people. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. So yesterday, when much of the country was taking the day off in commemoration of one of America's civil rights heroes, uh, if not the most well-known civil rights hero, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., there are two states that use the day as an opportunity to simultaneously celebrate Confederate General Robert E. Lee. And those two states are Alabama and Mississippi. 
And if you needed a reminder, despite what your textbooks may have said, Robert E. Lee was not uh, an honorable man or a reluctant hero who was simply fighting for the rights of his home state of Virginia, as he's often described in our popular American memory and imagination. He is, in fact, a man who conducted slave hunts of free black Americans. He is a man who massacred black Union soldiers who tried to surrender during the war. In essence, he is a man who led a treasonous army to fight a war with the intention of maintaining and expanding the practice of human bondage against black people. There is no way to honor him without honoring a history that was committed to the project of chattel slavery and white supremacy. Just like full stop. So I think that's important to know just because I, I'm always struck by how few people are aware that that is something that happens. And also just quickly, I think it's really important for us to remember the holistic legacy of Dr. King. It's important to remember him beyond a single line in a single paragraph of one speech on one day. It is important to remember that he believed in guaranteed employment and universal basic income. Uh, you know, guaranteed income should not just be used to provide for the most basic needs of survival, but should actually reduce economic inequality. He believed in the fundamental redistribution of wealth. He is someone who understood that racism and capitalism were deeply intertwined. He said, quote, Negroes must not only have the right to go into any establishment open to the public, but they must also be absorbed into our economic system in such a manner that they can afford to exercise that right. So he has this profound analysis of the relationship between racism and capitalism. And he also understood the larger global context of inequality. He was deeply concerned with how imperialism and colonialism shaped the political and economic landscapes of the global South, insisting that people who lived in wealthy countries like ours have the resources and scientific knowledge available to eliminate poverty wherever it existed and that we simply have made a choice not to. And, and that there was a moral obligation to institute, you know, what is essentially the equivalent to a Marshall Plan in countries, you know, throughout Africa and Asia and South America and all of these other places that have suffered at the hands of Western imperialism. The summary is Robert E. Lee is trash and Dr. King is more than a single line in the I Have a Dream speech. Uh, and Clint, it's not just, you know, Robert E. Lee's birthday that is being celebrated, but in five states... Uh, they actually celebrate Confederate History Month in April. So Alabama, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. And in Georgia, they had celebrated up until Dylan Roof killed uh, black churchgoers in 2015. They decided to stop celebrating Confederate History Month. But in five states, they still celebrate it. So this is something that is not just a day, but many states have dedicated an entire month to uh, celebrating the Confederacy and all of the hate and racism that it stands for. And just as a reminder, this is what we mean when we say there are not two sides to oppression. You can't both sides an issue like racism. It's not that you either like Dr. King and want to celebrate him or you like genocide, enslavement, family separation, raping black women, et cetera, et cetera, and you choose to celebrate Robert E. Lee. When the MLK holiday was handed down as a federal mandate, there were Southern states that said, okay, well, some people aren't going to want to celebrate Martin Luther King, so let's give them another option so that I can keep those folks happy and they can keep voting for me. That kind of strategy is what provides a foundation for the idea that you can just have a different opinion about oppression instead of under understanding what the facts are. This is just a reminder that there are a host of states that have laws that prohibit the removal of the statues. So in Alabama in 2017, Georgia in the early 20th century, Mississippi 2004, North Carolina 2015, South Carolina 2000, Tennessee 2013, Virginia 1902. There are a host of places that 
have these laws that make it almost impossible to move a set of statues that celebrate a past and a legacy deeply rooted in racism and that play to like the white fantasy that that when we think about what the confederate statues do is that they say like not only is it something that we're proud of but this is something that like means something positive and that is really dangerous you think about places like in alabama there's a memorial preservation act that just in 2019 seems to have been challenged successfully in the courts in north carolina there's a cultural history artifact management and patriotism act and then in Tennessee, it's called the Tennessee Heritage Protection Act. In Tennessee, they require a two-thirds majority of the Tennessee Historical Commission to rename, remove, or relocate any public statue, monument, or memorial. And that's specifically because in Memphis, they were trying to move some statues. So we know the symbolism matters, and there are people like using the structures of government to make sure that these symbols continue. Speaking of white supremacy in the South, my news is focused on Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And my news really starts in July of 2017, when a Baton Rouge police officer named Yusuf Hamidi conducted a traffic stop in which he shot and killed Jordan Frazier. Now, there was no video evidence of what happened, but based on the officer's word, the police department ruled that the shooting was justified and actually gave the officer a Medal of Valor before the investigation was even closed. Just three months after that shooting, this same officer conducted another traffic stop with another black man, this time named Raheem Howard, in which he claimed that Raheem had a gun, claimed that Raheem shot at him, and shot at Raheem. In this case, Raheem survived, but again, the officer shot at Raheem. Now, in this case, there was enough evidence that the investigators were able to uncover to determine that the police lied, that this officer lied about Raheem having a gun, Raheem never had a gun, uh, and they fired the officer as a consequence. But just this week, the Baton Rouge Fire and Police Municipal Civil Service Board decided that that firing should be reversed. And they voted that the officer should actually be reinstated back on the force because they alleged the officer's rights were violated under the Louisiana Police Bill of Rights law. Now, there are 14 states across the country that have police bill of rights laws. And these are laws that give police special protections and privileges while they're under investigation for misconduct. And in Louisiana, the reason that the board decided that the officer should be reinstated, again, it's pending appeal by the police department, um, so maybe he won't get reinstated. But the reason that they decided this was because they alleged that the officer didn't have access to legal counsel while taking a lie detector test. So because of that, despite this officer's history of multiple shootings under similar circumstances, despite him being found to have lied about what happened... They are now saying that the officer should be back on the force. Uh, and if the police department isn't successful in their appeal, then ultimately that's what will be the decision. Sam, I think it's important to note there seems to be a reliance on these stories kind of fading from the limelight where it comes to these officers. It seems as though there is this feeling that once the cameras go away, once the spotlight dims, once the chatter has died down, that these officers can re-enter the very same space where they have already invoked so much damage and go right back on about their lives and resume normal activity. It seems as though the police chief has appealed this ruling, and so I'm hopeful that he will not actually ultimately be reseated in his 
this position. And this is why our engagement with our local police departments, city councils, and mayors matters so, so much. These rules are different in every place. And if you don't know the rules in your own community, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to continue to pay attention a couple of years down the road when your knowledge may help save uh, everyday citizens from being subject to officers who should not be behind the badge anymore. I'm glad you brought this up, Sam. It's impossible for me to hear about any stories of police misconduct in uh, my home state of Louisiana without also thinking about the Blue Lives Matter bill that Louisiana became the first state to pass a bill of its kind a few years ago, I think now. And just as a a quick reminder for folks, the Blue Lives Matter bill essentially makes any harm against police officer a hate crime, which is a complete misrepresentation of what a hate crime is or should be, which is an act that is specifically committed against someone of a different background or a different ethnicity or a different, you know, different facet of one's identity with the specific intention of harming that person rather than a profession that someone has. And and so I, the Blue Lives Matter bill is, is just another example of the ways in which police become a protected class uh, in, in ways that are often unnecessary and often run counter to the, the goal of public safety because these sorts of things, all they do is continue to sow uh, seeds of distrust within communities that already have very legitimate reasons to mistrust the police. And so, you know, this is a really concerning set of uh, things that, that you brought up. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that the appeal of this decision brings some sort of justice. You know, one of the reasons why we we are all a broken record around police uh, contracts and laws and stuff like that is that these are the things that almost guarantee police officers won't be held accountable. And Louisiana has a law that literally says that any officer upon written request can have any record of a formal complaint made against the officer for any violation at the local level, at the state level, or like a crime, including domestic violence, like it explicitly says that. It can have those expunged if the complaint was made anonymously and the charges weren't substantiated within a year of filing the complaint. Now, one of the reasons that that's wild is that, like, we won't even know. So say, for example, a male police officer's wife submits these complaints of domestic violence. Any other person, like, you'd at least know that the complaint was submitted or, like, you'd know that somebody submitted complaints against officers for, like, stealing or like whatever with private citizens there's there's at least a record that the complaint was filed the police because of their intimate knowledge of the system they have created a a law that says that you won't even know a complaint was filed that is wild so that's just one of many things that we want to focus on but there are a lot of places across the country you actually can't file anonymous complaints against officers or the complaint itself can actually just get destroyed So I want to talk a little bit about environmental racism. When it comes to kind of top tier elite NGOs and foundations that are tackling environmental justice, we have actually come to find out that they are not nearly as diverse as they need to be. So an organization called Green 2.0 puts out a report every single year about just how diverse nonprofits, NGOs, and foundations that work on environmental issues actually are. When they measured the data from 2017 to 2018, they found that during that year, the number of people of color in senior staff positions at foundations actually fell from 33% to just 4%. 
which of course means that white senior staff at the foundations rose from 67% to 96%. The NGOs did a little bit better. The number of senior staff of color actually rose from 14% to 21%, but racial diversity within full-time staff members and board members actually fell slightly. So what this means is that these organizations are not even reflective of the diversity of the general population, let alone the demographics of the most affected by environmental injustice. We also know that because this data is voluntarily given to an organization called GuideStar and Green 2.0 actually goes and analyzes it, that there are some folks who are just not coughing up the data. There's an organization called Oceana, which is a prominent Ocean Advocacy Organization, and, and I didn't know this, the Pew Charitable Trust, which is one of the country's largest funders of environmental efforts, they actually both declined to release their numbers. The Pew Charitable Trust has since put out a statement saying that they care about diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. But here's what I know, and here's what we talk about all the time. Diversity is just a first step. When it comes to undermining and upending systemic and institutional oppression, we can't actually stop at diversity. We need to make sure that the groups of people working on these issues are diverse, that they feel included, and that they're experiencing equity in the work and the spaces where they are. But we can't even get to issues of inclusiveness and equity if we don't get to diversity first. You cannot be solving issues for people of color and communities of color if those communities are not thoroughly represented. But we need to be having a conversation about how at the top tier levels, people of color are simply not getting the seat at the table to do the work that they need to do for the communities they serve. Brittany, I'm really glad you brought this up. I don't think that we see enough data like this oftentimes. Like I, I think we rightfully focus a lot on the people who are impacted by environmental racism. And thankfully, folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others are linking the cause of environmental justice to a range of other social justice causes you know, in public in a way that, that many other, to be clear, many activists have been doing for, for decades, for generations, truly. But it is honestly something to see the Green New Deal being presented as the thing that can sort of link the economic justice issues, racial justice issues, and environmental justice issues together. And I think it is important for us to think about who is uh, leading these movements, who's at the table for for this work, um, because as we know, you know, representation in and of itself is not necessarily enough to uh, ensure that the, the politics of any movement are enough, but it is important to recognize that it is an essential step in beginning to ensure that certain voices are represented. Yeah, and I think, you know, looking at this report, it's focused on sort of the largest green organizations in the country that most prominent, but it's important to recognize that there are a lot of sort of smaller grassroots groups and organizations uh, that are doing the work of environmental justice, but not getting the same amount of funding or the same level of publicity or a platform to share the work that they're doing. You know, I think about uh, groups that are, for example, fighting uh, to remove toxic waste dumps in their own backyards, right? Folks who are organizing uh, around uh, making sure that folks in Florida, in communities, particularly communities of color in Florida, uh, are protected from the next hurricane. 
a lot of that happens uh, in a way that has less of a platform than, than some of the larger organizations. Uh, but part of this work has to be not only figuring out how do we sort of diversify or make more equitable the existing infrastructure of the green movement and, and those folks who already have uh, more resources within it, uh, but also how to create a more equitable movement overall that can redistribute some of those funds uh, and empower and uplift and give a broader platform to create space for sort of more grassroots groups and local activists, particularly in communities of color, uh, that have been doing this work for quite some time. You know, I've heard people say that, that why are we focusing on environmental justice, right? That there's so many issues uh, in criminal justice that that should be, that we're like getting off topic or off track. Or these aren't our issues. And, you know, I'm reminded that that one of the reasons why black people disproportionately have not participated in things like public parks and swimming and things like that is not because of a lack of interest. It's because literally like my grandmother was barred from swimming in public pools, you know, like she was barred from going to parks, like that her access to like public land was actually restricted as a part of a strategy. And we are like a generation or two away from that. So like, that's a part of it is like remembering that, some people's ability or like proclivity towards a certain thing is influenced by their exclusion in the past. The second is a reminder that the physical environment is where we live, work, play, go to school and all that stuff that like, there's no way to separate the physical environment from the culture environment. So yes, we want to end mass incarceration. If we free everybody from jail and then you die because the air in your neighborhood is bad or, you know, nobody thought to make sure that your house wasn't going to get swept away with the next natural disaster or that like somebody didn't build the school over a toxic dump. Like if those things happen, like it's not a win. And our goal is to win, not just in sort of one space, but to win in all of them. And we know that race is still a predictor of land use, power plants, air quality, and that the environmental justice fight is about protection, regulation, enforcement, resources, and access. So my news is about uh, harm reduction. So we've heard a lot about harm reduction. You know harm reduction, even if you don't use a term, because you've. I'm assuming that many people have heard of needle exchanges, and needle exchanges are harm reduction strategies. Harm reduction is essentially the strategy of uh, when you know that people are likely going to still use, you want them to use drugs in a way that is going to be as safe as possible. So the most popular harm reduction strategy, like I said, is needle exchanges. So you know if you are using heroin or something else, you can go to a facility, exchange the needles that you had for clean needles, and that can prevent the spread of hepatitis, HIV, a whole host of things. The article that I had, though, was about a harm reduction strategy employed in the UK. It was a harm reduction tent at a concert by a nonprofit group called The Loop. And what they did is that if you brought drugs to the concert, they would actually test your drugs there while you were there, give you the results so that you knew exactly what you were about to use. So they found examples of people thinking that they were using taking MDMA who were actually taking malaria tablets and then people who thought they were taking ecstasy actually had concrete pellets like pellets of concrete and like that's what they were told was ecstasy so i thought that was interesting that like i never thought of harm reduction strategies at like concerts uh, the other thing that i thought was really interesting is that in that tent they actually required you to sit down with a drug counselor for 15 minutes so they would test it they would give it back to you but they did have a counseling component as a part of it some of the other harm reduction strategies being used in the united states are like fentanyl testing strips i think this is fascinating and there's some studies across the country and some sites where adults who are users have been given fentanyl testing strips so like 10 testing strips and they can actually just put a small sample of 
the heroin or whatever drug might be laced with fentanyl in water, put the strip in and it'll say if it's laced. And that that has been shown to change the behavior of people who use drugs so that they are using at least a little bit safer. I think this is so important, DeRay, in part because this is one of the ways that if we actually stop making moral judgments about people, we can save lives, keep people protected and keep people safe. You know, we speak often about the challenge between kind of moral purity when fighting for good and things like harm reduction, things that cause us to grapple with the reality of something versus uh, the the ideal of something. And on the other end of, of the way that we often d- discuss that exists drug policy, right? These kind of zero tolerance policies that often punish users and dealers and create a, a space of moral judgment for all of those folks, irrespective of what the drugs are how they're being used, why they're being used, et cetera. Instead of actually looking at the fact that in reality, when people go to social events, when they go to concerts, when they go to parties, when they go to raves, that drugs are being used and they are widely available. So why not actually make sure that things are safe for people? So I think that this is illustrative in a lot of ways, because if we can actually divorce ourselves from some of the moral purity tests that we apply in different situations and on different issues, we can recognize that there can be a both and, that we can actually remove uh, harmful drugs from spaces and also ensure that people who are taking drugs are the safest that they possibly can be while they're taking them. Yeah, I think this is a brilliant example of what happens when we don't respond to everything with further criminalization and incarceration, but instead actually start to ask the tough questions. You know, reading through this article, how some of the counselors would help thinking about like your size, your body weight, they could actually say that, you know, your actual dosage of drugs that you're taking is way too much. It's going to result in all of these complications and problems. And and instead, like what you should do to prevent that is, you know, start on this regimen instead and actually try to reduce your harm uh, moving forward, taking out the types of uh, chemicals and, and sort of additional elements that often cause uh, even even further problems uh, as a strategy to actually help people. You know, we don't think about a, a lot in the context of systems and structures and policymakers often don't think in those terms. But ultimately, it's about the data. It's about are we saving lives or not? Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, pretty closely aligned with uh, a lot of the research that's been going on with safe injection sites. Instead of criminalizing the behavior or pathologizing the behavior, uh, it's recognizing that a certain set of behavioral patterns exist in a population. And I'm always interested in us thinking about how we can build a better world and a safer world from the one that currently exists rather than the one that we sort of imagine in our mind. And I think this, you know, harm reduction sites are an example of that, that sort of thinking. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Podcast the People's coming. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, 
sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com slash store to shop And now my conversation with David Johns, executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition. David, thanks so much for joining us on Party of the People. Thank you for having me, good sir. I have so many questions about what you're doing now, but I want to know what was it like to transition out of the Obama White House and decide what you were going to focus on next? Like, how do you reflect on the things that you learned in the Obama administration, and how did that help set you up to think about what you were going to do next? For me, leading um, an initiative that President Obama established, the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African Americans, was an incredibly humbling experience. When I think about the transition out of that role, it is uh, incredibly disappointing. I think about the feeling of being in my office the day of inauguration, almost being arrested because I forgot um, I lost track of time trying to download files and save as much as I could, knowing that the incoming administration had plans to delete as much as possible, including websites. You know, I I thought early on in the period of time between Election Day and inauguration about how to best use my time, talent, and my treasures. And I knew that I wanted to be selfish in uh, retreating to my comfort space, which is academia, um, and pursue a Ph.D., to think through some of the challenges that vexed me during my 10 years in D.C., both crafting federal policy and then implementing it as a part of the administration. But then also, you know, while I was in the White House, the thing that I'm most proud of is having produced this summit series where students were centered. And we produced one in particular for Black LGBTQ youth, which was significant because um, I spent almost a decade on Capitol Hill and in all that time, whenever people lobby for Black students, they talked as if they were all heterosexual. And then conversely, whenever people talked about or lobbied for LGBTQ youth, they approached them as if they were all white. And so knowing that as long as there have been Black people, there have been Black LGBTQ people, and that often, unless people were intentional and unapologetic in centering and celebrating those intersectional identities, we were ignored um, and our needs were neglected. And so there was an opportunity to work with the National Black Justice Coalition, uh, really to continue to working with them because we produced a summit together and my board chair, Sharon Lemon Hicks, was in the role that I have now. Um, and so there was already a working relationship, um, but there was an opportunity to deepen the work for me to marry a personal commitment to claiming space without apologizing or shrinking or denying parts of myself, um, but also to make space for other people. 
And what is the National Black Justice Coalition? Like, how would you describe it to people who are like, what does it do? Why do you think this is going to be the avenue to make the impact you want to make? Yeah, a question I get often. The National Black Justice Coalition is the nation's only uh, civil rights and public policy organization that is intentional and unapologetic and advocating for uh, and celebrating the assets of Black LGBTQ and same gender loving people. We do the work of acknowledging those of us who are most neglected and ignored, reminding people, as I said previously, that as long as people have existed, LGBTQ people have existed, and that is true for Black people as much as it is true for non-Black people. And our work is primarily uh, focused on three core things. The first is trying to ensure and advocate for health and wellness, particularly by addressing the disproportionate impact that HIV and AIDS continues to have in our community. The second area of our work is around cultural competence, so equipping people with the language, the context, resources with which they can do a better job of understanding and then holding space for Black LGBTQ people. And then the third area is focusing on public policy, really advocating for legal protections uh, and other policies and practices um, that address the core issues that affect Black LGBTQ people, our families, and our community more generally. What are some of the policy issues that we should be focused on that you think haven't gotten the public attention that they need? There are four that come to mind. The first is census. We have a census coming up. And the census is how uh, the federal, uh, local, municipal governments allocate resources by determining and really defining uh, who people are and and where they live um, and accordingly what kind of resources and support they need. There has, one, been a continued effort to ensure that Black LGBTQ people um, are counted. We know anyone who works in policy or data knows that that which is counted is concerned. And so we're working to ensure that we are counted. The second area that we really focus on is around health and wellness. And so we're doing everything we can as a part of coalitions around the country to protect the Affordable Care Act, and in particular to ensure that protections exist for individuals who are thriving with HIV and AIDS. The second thing that we are focusing on that is loosely connected to the Affordable Care Act but has much more to do with practices in our community is talking about mental health and dealing with the stigma that sometimes prevents us from asking for the kind of help um, that we need, especially us as black men. The third area that we're focusing on is around criminal justice, really concerned about the bill that is being pushed in the Senate at present and the authorities that it would give to the attorney general to undo and otherwise enforce laws that have a disparate impact upon black communities, poor communities, non-native communities, queer communities, and the like. And then the fourth area that we're really focusing on is around equal protection. And so there are six states throughout the country where it is legal to discriminate against LGBTQ people with regard to public housing and employment. Those states are in the South, where not only black people are disproportionately concentrated, but where black LGBTQ people are disproportionately concentrated. And so if we think about what happened not too long ago with this administration attempting to introduce a definition of people that would be used by Health and Human Services and other agencies that deny the existence of individuals of trans experience, equal protection laws, things like the Equality Act and others, would create uniform protections at a federal level to ensure that the rights that too many people take for granted, but that are denied so many of us that have intersectional and overlappingly oppressed identities, are still fighting for. You know, in the places where it is technically legal to discriminate, there are a lot of people that would say, well, it's legal to discriminate, but like, do you have proof that discrimination is actually happening? What do you say to those people? (laughs) 
Uh, my first question is, why would one need proof? And why are we in the space of attempting to defend any type of discrimination? You know, we hosted an event during a National Trans Day of Remembrance, a day designed to commemorate the fact that every year there are at least 30 instances of violence that ended murder of trans individuals, most of whom are black trans women. Um, and we're having this event with Reverend Al Sharpton in the House of Justice in Harlem, New York. And he said in front of a congregation of folks for whom I'm sure this was um, very challenging to think about creating faith space, social justice space for trans individuals, that if you defend by trans biggest toward anyone, you condone it toward everyone. And so that would be my first thing to really interrogate why it is that sometimes people have a visceral response to want to defend uh, any kind of bias or bigotry um, that results in anyone else not being happy, healthy, or whole. And the second thing is, yes, there's all kinds of data. So whether we're looking at incidents or reports of hate crime that we should acknowledge are often underreported, when we think about the many organizations, Native organizations, Indigenous organizations that have been created in uh, communities in the South, but organizations that exist to provide employment opportunities to individuals within our communities who are locked out of traditional jobs um, in banks or industries where people are policing not only behavior but appearance. When we look at the discipline data um, around the rates at which uh, young people, students, our babies um, are suspended and expelled from schools, because of their appearance, uh, what we know is that students who are black, who have disabilities, are most likely to be pushed out of, of school. Students who are black and LGBTQ, young people, are most likely to be pushed out of their home, uh, to be homeless, to experience suicidality. And so if you think about quality of life as a ladder, almost any rung that would indicate one's quality of life, black LGBTQ people often beginning um, around birth and through the point of time in which they die, which is also, again, younger in terms of life expectancy, um, we are at the lowest rungs. And so the long answer is to say, yes, I have data. If there are people who are like, I've been thinking about access to health care, I don't know much about the issue of HIV coverage or issues around the Affordable Care Act that pertain to the LGBT community explicitly, like what is the what there? I would say generally to think about the fact that there are millions of Americans and hundreds of thousands of black people in particular who have access to health care now that they have never had in the history of their lifetime. This means that they have access to the kinds of care, which includes sometimes drugs, which includes sometimes mental support. That's one. Um, the second thing is with regard to prevention, which is critical to having conversations about ending HIV. I, as a, a black man who falls into the category that the CDC uses to talk about men who have sex with men, am disproportionately impacted by the AIDS HIV epidemic. Um, what that means is that unless things change, um, the, the chances of me becoming HIV positive in my lifetime are 50 percent. That's what the CDC said years ago, and nothing has changed since. And so the ability to leverage the Affordable Care Act to purchase prescription medicine like PrEP, a pill that I take every single day, reduces the likelihood of me becoming HIV positive by more than 90%. That drug is like $2,000 on the market. It is something that I would not be able to afford in spite of the fact that I have multiple Ivy League degrees. And the reality is that I still had to leverage a whole lot of capital in order to access that drug. And so anyone who is concerned about their health should be mindful that the Affordable Care Act provides us with access to resources that were denied heretofore um, and that private companies and the Republican Party in particular would like to strip us from having access to now. The third thing is that this administration has been intentional since day one 
uh, restricting individuals who are currently thriving with HIV from the ability to access life-saving uh, medicine and support. This president ended PACHA, a presidential uh, advisory council, to advise the administration and the federal government on its AIDS and HIV policies, a council that was bipartisan and existed in spite of political party transition before this current administration. They have also taken latitude uh, that exists in terms of executive authority within HHS to try and restrict the ability for individuals with HIV to be able to access drugs that they need in, in order to live. And so if you care about anybody's humanity and or your own health and well-being, ensuring that everyone has access to Affordable Care Act should be a primary concern of yours. What are some of the policy things? Or like, what can an everyday person do in the fight against HIV and AIDS? Are there policy things that people should be advocating for at the local level? Is it awareness? Is it prep? Like, what can people do that listen who are like, I believe, I just don't know how to help? Yeah, the answer is D, all of the above. The first thing that people can do is learn uh, the words that are affirming and that are not stigmatizing to use to have conversations not only about HIV and AIDS, but about positive sexual health and wellness and affirmative consent uh, more generally. Having conversations about HIV in the same way that we should be having conversations about mental health or financial history, um, you know, the things that make it awkward for us to maneuver through dates are developing relationships with people, um, but that are parts of who we are and how we show up in the world um, and that we otherwise should be comfortable talking about. And so that's the first thing. You can visit our website, www.mbjc.org, to download the Words Matter HIV Toolkit and start talking to stop HIV. The second thing, you asked about policies. Yes, there are so many policies. We are fighting federally now to address HIV criminalization laws, which really make it difficult for us to do the job of encouraging people to get tested, because what it means is that in some states, if you are HIV positive and you do not disclose your status to your partners, no disclose your status to your partners, you can be convicted of a crime. There are lots of reasons uh, why that's problematic, including advancements in medical advancements and social advancements in how we respond to HIV and AIDS. The third thing is that we should all be tested. Um, we should all know our status. Um, we should all do a better job of having conversations um, with our partners in particular about how it is that we are protecting our sexual health um, and how we're protecting the sexual health of others. I'm not wagging my finger um, or pretending that this is easy, um, both these conversations um, or the strategies that are necessary in order for us to engage in them. Um, but I do know that they are life-saving. Um, the reality is that since the introduction of the HIV epidemic in the late 80s, Black people, people of color in particular, have died at a disproportionate rate. And that does not have to be the reality. It is possible to thrive with HIV. It is also possible to reduce the likelihood of being affected by HIV disproportionately. Now, what made you go back to school? For me, it was a very selfish pursuit. Having already completed um, a master's degree in sociology and education policy, I spent a, a decade on Capitol Hill writing federal policy, domestic policy, on everything from uh, improving Head Start and school readiness in 2007 um, to the Workforce Investment Act, the Workforce Investment and Opportunity Act more recently. And so I wanted a space to really think through how it is that I could conceive of policies that once we have an opportunity to really leverage our government to do that, which it was founded to do, supporting its people and ensuring that we all prosper and are safe and protected and supported, that once we have that opportunity, we're ready to go. And so I'm working through that now and really very much connected to the work of NBJC 
Uh, my dissertation focuses on uh, supporting white teachers and practicing critical humility um, so that they can do a better job of supporting black students. I operate in the spirit of Asa Hilliard, um, a sociologist who said that there's no secret to supporting uh, black students who are all geniuses, that we want to acknowledge them as human and second, support them with love. And so I'm leveraging this PhD um, and ultimately the degree that I will receive from Columbia to think through how to concretize that in and, and ways that can affect both policy and practice. Why do you think about the classroom as like a, a site of change, given all the work you've done work across so many sectors? Why the classroom? I taught kindergarten and third grade. And I did that after wrestling for a long time with a fundamental belief that educators do God's work but really living in a society that didn't tell me that as a first-generation college graduate, a black boy from Inglewood, California, that I could be an educator and that by being an educator, I could make meaningful and demonstrable change. And so, you know, it was uh, teaching kindergarten, sitting on a rug in the middle of um, almost 30 students, being enrolled in the process of young people thinking about who they are in the world around them, uh, that I understood my purpose in life and my ability to connect with uh, make space for and really affirm the beliefs of young students, young black students, young indigenous students, young queer students, young disabled students, to be celebrated and invited in now as an adult who's very credentialed, um, but who is very much them uh, where they are without the platform and another adult showing up in the way that I desired for somebody for me to show up is the thing that gives me greatest joy. And so part of my job now is to be invited in by white people to tell them how not to be as racist as they are. What do you say to the people who are like, they tried everything, right? They voted, they marched, they went to the panel, they went to the talk, they like did everything people told them to do and and the outcomes didn't change. What do you say to those people? I want to say I see you and everything that you've done is important. And I want to invite you into a space where after we acknowledge that it sucks to work at something and to not see the outcome that you hoped for, that we can still find evidence of change, right? One of the things that is most vexing for me in doing work with young people is telling them that the way to show up and to win and to be successful at life is to be a good person, to practice humility, to make space for other people, um, to use your words in ways that affirm uh, and that give life, not in ways that harm and persecute. Um, And to do that at a point in time in which there is a person in the Oval Office who does everything but those things. My work and my job is not to boil the ocean or to change the world such that at a certain point all of these things go away, but to touch as many people as I can, to challenge them and hopefully change them so that they can make space for somebody else. What's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Freeman Rabowski, who is one of the most amazing men ever, he's president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, says to me often, those who the gods seek to destroy, first they make angry. (laughs) And he uh, often offers it in the moments in which I'm having a visceral response to white supremacy, um, anti-blackness, or ageism. And it is a way of reminding me to leverage all of the skills that I have access to, including language and comportment. And also passion when I need to be unrelenting and reminding people that I'm also a black boy from Inglewood in spite of these credentials. Um, But to do so in the way that is most strategic and not often most emotional. And then the last thing is something that my mother always said to be happy and to find your happy. For so many of us, um, again, who do social justice work and are forced into 
advocacy spaces. Um, happiness is not something that we are afforded space to or intentional in thinking about. And being able to do that in spite of, again, all of the challenges that I know exist is what allows me to get over. Mr. David Jones, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod to the People. And, uh, you know, I learned so much. We consider you a friend of the pod. I can't wait to have you back. Looking forward to it. Thank you for making space for me, brother. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.